name. We've been thinking about what the name of Jesus means, but more than just the name of Jesus. Like sometimes we say Jesus, we're just kind of dropping that name. Sometimes we say it even not that well. But, but sometimes at the end of our prayers, like I like to pray in Jesus' name, or sometimes I'll say, Jesus, help me. We're just kind of dropping that name. But what we really mean when we say the name What we really mean when we say identity, what we mean is finding our identity in Christ. We're living through Christ who lives in us. And we're able to do that because Jesus came down and entered into our world. He identified with us. He who knows no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. He who was eternal and spiritual and righteous took on human flesh, identified with us so that we could take on his eternal life, his new life, his spiritual life, his family connection with the Father so we could become children of God. And that's what we mean when we've been talking about identity. This week, actually Tuesday, is All Saints Day. I don't know if that's a day that shows up on your calendar. It shows up on my calendar like little religious days. But All Saints Day is the day that we remember those who influenced our lives for Christ and have gone on before us into eternity. Today we're looking at Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And Stephen is the first martyr of the church, the first person to give his life for Christ after, de- after Jesus' death and resurrection. And, uh, and so he's kind of the beginning of those saints. But we've got our own saints in our lives. And, and every year on this week, on All Saints Day, is a time when I like to just think about who those people are that invested in my life, my spiritual life, and have gone on uh, to glory. They're part of that great cloud of witnesses in the sky but they're still part of me and my church, and I'm still part of them and their church. Well, here at Christ Church, we have at least three members who passed away this past week, all of which had a real influence on this church and and several of them in my life as well. One of them was Jeff Henderson. He and his wife, Nancy, were the bevs of our church when I came the first time in 2003. You guys remember Jeff and Nancy Henderson? They were the integration folks. They were the folks that often were the first ones you met when you came in the church, the folks that helped us run the membership classes, helped with the baptism stuff. They did everything to make someone like me when I first came to Christ Church in 2003 feel at home here. They, they really opened the, literally opened the door and figuratively opened the door for so many of us to be part of Christ Church. And Nancy passed away a couple years ago. Jeff passed away in uh, February, went on to be with the Lord. Pat Charbonneau, Dave's uh, mom, passed away this past March. Also, Dave's grandmother passed away. But Pat was a longtime member of this church. He was here when I was here before, invested in the church in so many different ways. Dave and uh, Pam are uh, at the Discipleship Leaders Retreat this weekend, um, but just remembering Pat and, and Bonnie Wine, who served in so many ways at our church, uh, oftentimes next to Bev, serving with Bev in so many ministries. She's passed away uh, too early after a long battle with uh, several illnesses in April. And then also the General Otto Gunther passed away last October, just before Lord's Day last year. Um, those are folks that really had an impact on my life. Um, You probably have other folks in your mind that you've lost over the past year or years. And I'd just like to say a prayer as we think about this Lord's Day, uh, thanking God for these folks that invested in our lives and, uh, and remembering that they're part of this worldwide global church, this eternal movement that God's doing, and we're going to be with them again soon.
Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for these folks that invest in our lives, these saints that have gone before us, these people through whom we've seen Jesus, even Stephen, as we think about his life today, and we think about all these other men and women who were Christ to us. Thank you, Lord, for those that lived out their faith in this way that we saw you through them. And we pray that you'd inspire us to live our lives in that type of way, that our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors, our co-workers, those folks in our lives would see you through us. Thank you, Lord, that we're part of this worldwide movement, this eternal movement that you're doing to build your kingdom. And we pray that you'd help us to step into that life today in a deeper way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you take your your sermon notes, we are thinking about this idea of identity. We're thinking about the fact that in Acts chapter 3 through Acts chapter 10, in those seven chapters, the word name is used 22 times. Every time it's used to talk about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scripture says that there's power in the name of Jesus. There's healing in the name of Jesus. There's salvation in the name of Jesus. There's assurance in the name of Jesus. Signs and wonders are performed in the name of Jesus. Good news is preached in the name of Jesus. Forgiveness is offered in the name of Jesus. Just over and over in this text, the name of Jesus is opening us up to what God wants to do in our lives. Again, it's not just dropping the name of Jesus. It's that identification that we're living in Christ and Christ is living in us. That's what Stephen's all about. We're looking at Acts chapter 7 today. In Acts chapter 6, Pastor Tony introduced us to Stephen last week. He was one of these seven deacons. There was a problem in the church. Some of the widows weren't getting a daily ration of food. They were literally going hungry in the church. And the church had this problem. They're like, how are we going to solve this? They looked for people who were filled with the Holy Spirit and had wisdom. And when they put that list together, Stephen was at the very top of that list. They asked Stephen, Stephen, will you take on this ministry? And he did. But he quickly moved from just offering physical sustenance to people to preaching the the message of the gospel. And, And when he did that, he got in trouble with the Jewish ruling council, what's called the Sanhedrin, who drug him into court. And the whole chapter seven, as you read through Acts, it's 60 verses long. We're going to try to get through as much of it today as we can. This entire chapter is just Stephen sharing with the Sanhedrin what this gospel is all about by working his way all the way through the Old Testament. That's what we're going to look at today. The question I want you to think about as we get into this is this question. Have you ever felt all alone? Anybody here ever felt all alone? Maybe you're in a crowd. Maybe you're in a big family. Maybe you're in a place at work with 50 different desks. But even in a crowd, have you ever felt all alone? Like there's nobody on your side. Like there's nobody on your team. Like nobody's rooting for you. Like you're all by yourself. When I think of Stephen standing there in the Sanhedrin, 71 of the most powerful religious leaders in the world, I think, oh my gosh, (laughs) that's a scary idea. I imagine he felt all alone. But then the amazing thing about this text is that he wasn't alone. Actually, Jesus was right there with him. And at the end of this text, he looks up and he sees Jesus sitting in the right hand of the Father, and he senses the Holy Spirit filling his life. And it reminds us that no matter what we go through in life, you're not alone. You might be going through some tough times in life. You might be going through some great times in life. You're not alone. You're not doing it by yourself. You're not trying to make it through this life on your own. 
Jesus is with us, and that's what we're talking about. Let me begin this text, Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. This is picking up where Pastor Tony let off uh, last week. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, those are Egypt and Libya in the ancient Roman world, and some from Cilicia and Asia, those are two provinces on what's now Turkey, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. And we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us, fixing their gaze on him. All who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Stephen is one of those people that when other people looked at him could just see that he was different. He's one of those people, like Jeff and Nancy Henderson, one of those people like Otto Gunther, one of those people like Pat Charbonneau, Bonnie Wine. That when you saw them, you, you, you could see God was at work in their life, right? The church saw that in an amazing way. They were looking. There were 2,000 people in the church at this point. They had a prom. They were like, who could fix this prom? And they prayed about it, and they thought about it. And they said, Stephen, Right? He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's filled with wisdom. Let's get him to do it. Let's make him the servant in charge of this ministry. They could see it. It says in verse 8 that he was full of grace and power, that he was performing, God was performing through him great wonders and signs. Even when people rose up to to argue with him. Remember, Stephen wasn't one of the apostles. He wasn't one of the folks that traveled with Jesus for three years. He's not a Pharisee. He's not seminary trained, but, but he's announcing the good news of Christ, even though he's put in charge of a feeding ministry. And the trained rabbis could not contend, contend with the wisdom, it says, and the spirit with which he was speaking. He, he, he was one of those people that even his enemies could realize there's something different about him. Look, look at verse 15. It says, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Wow. Even the people that hated him, the people that were about ready to throw stones at him and kill him, said, this guy's different. You couldn't look at him without seeing grace. You couldn't, you couldn't listen to him without hearing of the love of Christ coming through his words. He exuded Jesus. God was working through him. And because of that, some of the religious leaders hated him. They, they had been part of the team that had put Jesus on the cross. They had thought that they had gotten rid of this 
Messiah, that they'd gotten rid of this God with us. They didn't, they didn't want Jesus in their life. They didn't want Jesus in their world, world. And now Stephen is going around looking like, acting like, talking like Jesus. And they can't take it. They don't want it. And, and, and so they, 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 they induce some unscrupulous men to bring these charges against Stephen. There's two charges, basically. One, that he blasphemes Moses. What, he, what they mean by that is he, he blasphemes the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch, that he speaks against the law, that he contradicts the law of God. He speaks against the Scripture. That was a serious offense in ancient Israel. And, and then the second charge against Stephen is that he speaks, speaks against the temple. He, he even has said, this is what they're saying, this is not true, but this is what they're saying, that Jesus said he's going to tear down the temple. And so those are the charges. He's brought before the Jewish high council. Two charges. He speaks against the law of Moses, the scripture. He doesn't follow what scripture says. He tells people not to listen to scripture. And number two, he speaks against the temple. He says the temple's going to get torn down. Serious charges. Neither of those were true. You know, there was, there was no truth to any of that. The, the real reason he was on trial is because he looked and acted and spoke like Jesus. Because he believed that God was with us. Because he believed that God came down from heaven and lived in human flesh and died on the cross and rose from the dead. And he wanted everybody to know this good news. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. Even though he was just in charge of a feeding ministry at church, he couldn't keep his mouth shut. And everybody needed to know that Jesus was alive and that Jesus had died for them and risen from the grave so that they could have eternal life. And so what Stephen does, they pull him into the Sanhedrin and he goes through basically the entire Old Testament for Abraham through the prophets. And he wants to show the Jewish religious leaders that all of this Bible is really about Jesus. That it all is proclaiming the same thing that Jesus proclaimed. That God enters into our life. That God identifies with us. That God wants to live in us. That God wants to live through us in this world. That, that's his, his sermon. And he takes like 60 verses, you know, 60, literally 60 verses in chapter 7. An entire chapter of the book of Acts is devoted to Stephen's defense. Just think about that for a moment. Luke, in the book of Acts, is writing the history of the early church. There's 28 chapters, and an entire chapter, almost 4% of the book of Acts, is just Stephen's words. That's all it is. It's just Stephen's defense. We get, we get his entire defense. And so uh, I'm not that good of a reader. I don't have that much time. So we're not going to read all 60 verses, but we're going to read a lot of it. I just want you to get the weight of this defense because what it is, it's just an amazing summary of God's word, which all points to this incredible truth that God's with us. He starts with Abraham, the fact that God appeared to Abraham. This is verse 2 through 8. He said, hear me, brethren and fathers. He starts very respectfully. This is a patriarchal culture. These are all men. These are the high priests, the, the top Pharisees, the top Sadducees, the top scribes in Israel. The 71 of them. He's on trial in front of them. Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. 
and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come and see the land that I will show you. Let me just make a, 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 a little observation here. You see on the text behind me or if you're at home on your screen, those words, leave your country and your relatives, da, 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 is all in all caps. I don't know if you've ever noticed that when you read the Bible. In the New Testament, when somebody quotes the Old Testament, they indicate that, most uh, editions of the Bible, most translations, indicate that by putting it in all caps. When we go through this text, you'll see about half of Stephen's defense is in all caps because it's, it's quotes from the Old Testament. Remember, he's being charged with blaspheming against the Scripture. So about half of his response is just Scripture. This comes from Genesis 12. Leave your country and your relatives and come to the land that I'll show you. Then he left, Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God had him move to this country, Canaan, in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. Again, that's Genesis 12, 7. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation in which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. Remember, he's being charged with blaspheming against scripture and blaspheming against the temple. It's really a charge that he's telling people Jesus is God with us. And Jesus is alive, and Jesus is living in us through his Holy Spirit. And so he goes all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament, to Genesis 12. And he says, think about Abraham. He's our father, after all. He's the father of the Hebrew people. He's more than that. He's the father of faith. Think about Abraham. Abraham was living in Ur of Chaldees. That's all the way down in southern Iraq. He's living there minding his own business, and God shows up to him one day and says, Abraham, I want to make you a great nation. I want to make a great nation out of you. I want to give you a great land. I need you to come and follow me. I need you to trust me. I need you to believe me. And so Abraham got up, and he traveled all the way from like southern Iraq all the way up to what's like now Syria. They call it Haran back then. And so he's living there. Then his father passed away. And then God says, you haven't gone far enough yet. I want you to leave Haran. I want you to come all the way down to what's now Israel. We'll call it Canaan at that time. I want you to live there. And so, and so Abraham follows them all the way there. This is like 800 miles, you know, from his home. And the amazing thing is, and Stephen tells us this, this is what Scripture tells us, he did not ever own a foot of land in that nation. When his wife died, Sarah, he bought a cave to bury her in. Other than that, he never owned a foot of land. And at this point, he had no descendants. And yet he had this promise that God was going to turn him into a great 
nation. Can you imagine? He has no descendant. He has no land. Now what, what more is a nation than people and territory? He has none of that. He's, he's a, almost a thousand miles from his home. But he had this promise, a promise that God was going to give him a new life out of his dead loins, out of his elderly, barren wife, that God was going to give him a new life, a child, and that God was going to give him a nation, a land. Stephen's point is that this is about Jesus. This is how God works. God breaks into our lives and he tells us to trust in his promise. When Jesus came, Jesus came to say, I want to give you a new life. You, you got to be born anew. I'm going to give you a new kingdom, a new nation that you're part of. And we're sitting here and we're like, well, where's, where, where's this nation? Nicodemus comes and says, how, 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 can I, how can I get a new life? I was born 30 years ago, right? How did that work? That's how God works. He offers us a promise. And that promise is that God's doing something new in our lives. But what Stephen is saying is I'm not blaspheming the Scriptures. The Scriptures are all about the fact that God breaks into the emptiness of our lives and offers us a new life. Look at Abraham. That's what happened. Abraham wasn't looking for God. God came looking for Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a covenant. So Abraham had Isaac, circumcised Isaac on the eighth day. That was a sign of the covenant. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons we call the patriarchs. That's the last word in that passage. In verse 9, we're introduced to these patriarchs. This is about God working in Joseph's life. So God was working in this way in Abraham's life. God was working in Joseph's life. It says in verse 9, the patriarchs, that's the 12 sons of Jacob. Joseph was one of them, and he had 11 brothers. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph. So the other 11 of his brothers became jealous of Joseph. It's actually 10 of them, but they became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. And yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his households. If you remember the story, and I won't read all of it, but if we keep going in, in, in Stephen's sermon, you'll see this. Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob loved Joseph the best. Anybody see Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat years ago? You saw the movie, saw it. Yeah, somebody back, yeah. It, Jacob had 12 sons. His favorite son was Joseph. This might not be a cool thing to do, but Jacob was pretty clear that his favorite son was Joseph. He made Joseph this beautiful coat, and he favored Joseph. His other brothers, except for Joseph's little brother from the same mom, uh, the other brothers all hated Joseph because of that. And so they want to kill him, and they were going to kill him, but then one of them said, hey, we don't have to kill him. We make some money off him. And when they threw him in a pit, some traders came by and they actually sold their brother into slavery. Joseph was sold into slavery. He was taken down to Egypt. He was sold to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife made up a story that he tried to rape her. He was thrown into jail. By God's miraculous hand, somehow he was protected in jail. Eventually he was let out. He ended up going and working for Pharaoh. And then because God was with him in such an amazing way, rising up to being the, the second in charge in Egypt, the, 
the governor of Egypt, and God told him, Egypt's going to have this horrible drought. You're going to have seven years of fat, seven years of lean. So in the next seven years, store up all the grain so you can feed the people when there's the seven years of lean, when this drought comes. So that's what Joseph did. He stored up all this grain. And so when everybody else was starving, Egypt had food. And actually, Pharaoh got incredibly rich because they had food to sell. People were coming from other nations and even from Canaan, which was the land flowing of milk and honey, were coming down to Egypt to buy food. And Jacob sent his sons down to Egypt to buy food. And on his second visit, Joseph said, hey, I'm your brother. I'm the one that you sold into slavery. And the scripture says that what they meant for evil, God used for good. And Joseph actually became the savior of his family. But because he was there as a slave originally, and now as this leader in Egypt, he could provide for his own brothers who had sold him into slavery. Stephen's telling this story. And the point of the story is that God works even through these horrific circumstances to bring a Savior. That we've now done the same thing with Jesus. That we've sold Jesus out that we've hung Jesus on the cross, that Jesus didn't deserve any of this stuff like Joseph didn't, that Jesus came just loved by the Father and we were jealous of how much Jesus was loved by the Father. We hung him on a cross, but actually what we meant for evil was for good and God's using it to save us. He says this idea that God's breaking into our world in Jesus Christ is nothing new. This is what the whole scripture is about. He says, look at Moses. You say I blaspheme against Moses. Look at Moses. He talks about Moses from chapter verse 20 through 37. But if you remember the story of Moses, Moses was born 400 years after Joseph. There was a new Pharaoh. He, he didn't know that how Joseph had saved the Egyptians from this, uh, from this drought. And so he enslaved Israel. Israel had, at this point, grown from 70 people into a million people. He made them the slaves in Egypt. And, and, and he, they just kept growing. And so the Pharaoh said, if they keep growing like this, they'll take over our whole country. So we'll stop it. The way we're going to stop it is every male born to the Hebrews we're going to destroy. We're going to throw them out. The, 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 the servants who helped with the birthing process were supposed to throw them into the Nile and let the crocodiles eat them or let the sun scorch them. And so all the boys were going to die. Well, Joseph, Moses was born into that. And his parents loved him. And so they hid him for three months, but they couldn't hide him any longer. And so they made a little basket out of reeds and pitch and they made a little boat for him and they put him in the Nile. And he drifted off at the time when Pharaoh's daughter was bathing. She saw the little boy. She took him in. She felt compassion for him. She raised him as her own son. So Moses was this Hebrew who was raised with privilege as an Egyptian, taught all the wisdom of Egypt. When he was 40 years of age, I don't know, conscious got a hold of him or God got a hold of his heart, and he started thinking about what the Hebrews were doing dealing with, what they were suffering with. He went out to watch, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, and he had such compassion on him, he went up and tried to stop the man, and he ended up killing the Egyptian. 
He thought he was going to be saving his people. He did this to try to protect his people. But the next day when he went back and he's like, come on, guys, let's work together. We can do this. His own people, the people that he had just saved, threatened to turn him in, right? Because he killed an Egyptian. So he had to flee to Sinai. He lived in Sinai for 40 years. And then this is what we read about in verse 30 through 34. It says, after 40 years passed, Moses now 80 years of age, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. This is from Exodus chapter 3. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet. The place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Come now, I will send you to Egypt. And that's what happened. God sent Moses to Egypt let my people go through many signs and wonders. God opened the door so that the uh, Israelite slaves could come out through the parting of the Red Sea to a new life. Stephen is saying, you say I blaspheme against Moses. You know what Moses is about? Moses is about this privileged child who entered into our destitute life our life of enslavement to try to protect us, to save us, but we didn't want him. And he ended up having to flee, but he saved us anyways. It's a, it's a story about salvation. It's a story about a savior. It's a story that points to Jesus. Jesus is the son of God who lived for all eternity in heaven with God, came down to our destitute enslavement, and we didn't want him. But he saved us anyways, because that's what God does. God's breaking through into our life. God, God's coming and entering into our desolation, into our death, into our sin. He's taking our sin upon himself. Stephen doesn't stop there. He's going all the way through the Old Testament. He goes up to Isaiah, where Isaiah prophesies about David, and he talks about David in, in verse 46 through 50. It says, David found favor in the sight, in God's sight, and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made of human hands, as the prophet says, this is from Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne, and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what kind of place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? So let me, let me remind you about David. See, now, everybody in the Sanhedrin already knows all these stories. I'm just trying to fill them in because we're not as familiar as them, with them as Pharisaical leaders in Israel. Remember David? David was a little shepherd boy. Samuel, the prophet back then, got word from God that one of Jesse's sons is going to be the new king, a, guy, a man after God's own heart. And so Samuel goes to Jesse's house, Jesse's farm, and says, Jesse, 
I got word from God, one of your sons is going to be the new king. Here's what we want. I want you to do. I want you to line up all your sons, and we're going to bring them out. One by one, I'm going to look at them. I'm going to ask God. God's going to show me who the right one is. God's going to, and then I'm going to anoint them. Whoever God picks, I'm going to anoint them, right? Remember this story? And so they're all lined up, and they start coming one after another before Samuel. And one after another, there's like seven of them. None of them are the right kid. He, he looks at all of them. It's like, no, nope. I don't know if I made a mistake. Is there another Jesse in here? You know, is there another Jesse in Bethlehem? I don't know. I mean, this might not be the right place. He, he says to Jesse, Jesse, what? I, I thought I heard from God, one of your sons, but none of, you don't happen to have any other sons, do you? And Jesse's like, yeah, I got one more. It's like, what in the world are we even doing here? I told you one of your sons. You, 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 he's like, well, he's just a shepherd boy. He's just a kid. He's out in the field with the sheep. Sam was like, bring him, right? And so he goes and he gets David, this little boy, David comes. Samuel looks at him and is like, that's the one. God says that's the one. He anoints him as king. And you know, from there, David goes and he saves Israel from Goliath and then saves Israel from the Philistines and then conquers the other nations around, conquers the Jebusites, takes Jerusalem, moves the capital of Israel to Jerusalem, builds a great palace for himself in this fortified city. David's large and in charge, you know. He's a man after God's own heart. God's with him. And it, later in his life, he's living in Jerusalem. He's like, God's been so good to me. And God's been with me all my life. You know what I want? I want to build a house for God right next to my house in Jerusalem, right? Wouldn't that be cool? I'm living here in the palace, and my next door neighbor is God, you know? That would be sweet, wouldn't it be? You know, it seems like a really good idea, you know, especially knowing David. Maybe the whole thing with Bathsheba and Uriah wouldn't even happen if he had God there living next to him, you know, because David was not a very good neighbor to Bathsheba and Uriah. So it sounds like a great idea. But Nathan the prophet comes to David and goes, no, you can't build the temple for God. First of all, God doesn't even need a temple. He's already got the tent. It's fine. But if, if, if anyone's going to build a temple, it's going to be your son. Solomon, you got too much blood on your hands. Just let Solomon do it. But then Isaiah tells us God doesn't want a temple anyways. God doesn't need a temple. Why? Because God lives in the expanse of heaven and God lives in all of creation. Everything that we see in this world, everything that we see in the cosmos is already his. He already owns the deed to your house. You're in the palace. You think it's your palace. It's his palace. Every rock in that palace is already his. It's all, it's all already his. He doesn't need you to build a temple for him. And remember, the charge on Stephen as he's blaspheming against the temple. He says Jesus is going to destroy the temple. He, Stephen's like, the temple's fine. It's a beautiful building. It's a great place to worship God. But understand this. God doesn't live there. Well, where does God live? God lives in the heavens. God lives on the earth. God lives, as far as what we can see, most clearly in Jesus Christ. God in the flesh who lives among us. God lives through his Holy Spirit in us. And that's what David knew. David was a man after God's own heart, that God was living in him. See, we always want to build temples because we want to contain God. We want to have a place where we can visit God on our schedule, where we know when we're in trouble, we can go and we can find God. But God doesn't live in any temples. 
God doesn't need to live in temples. He lives in the expanse of all of his creation and in heaven, and he lives in us when we invite him into our lives. Stephen goes on. He says, well, think about the prophets. The prophets, God spoke to every one of them, telling us that the Messiah was coming who was going to look like this. And you all, your fathers, killed all the prophets. And then in verse 55 through 60, this is the end of Stephen's speech. I'll read it for you. It says, But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling council. They cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they'd driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He's going to come back later. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Stephen is talking through the whole Old Testament. He's like, think about this. Abraham, just doing his thing in Ur of Chaldees, just like all the rest of us. And God shows up and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Well, I don't even have a kid. I don't even own a foot of land. Just trust me. Just believe me. God's doing something great in you. You can't see it with your eyes, but God's doing something great. So think about Joseph. His own brothers hated him. His own brothers sold him into slavery, but God intervened in that situation and used Joseph to save the entire nation of Egypt and his own people. Or think of Moses. Moses was born into this privilege. I mean, he should have been killed, but he was born into this privileged life as an Egyptian. But he gave up that life to be a savior, and his own people rejected him. But he saved him anyways. Or think of David. Think about that. David's own father didn't believe he had any potential in him, right? The the, the prophet shows up and says, one of your sons is going to be king. He's like, well, Forget about David. It's not David. But God chose him and lived in him and lived through him. And Stephen's point is that that's what God's doing in Jesus, right? In Jesus, we see God entering into this world, into our poverty, into our enslavement, into our death, to set us free. We we don't want it. We want to reject. But God is entering into our life. And Stephen looks up and he's like, there he is. He's right here with us. He's in the Sanhedrin, but Stephen's like, well, we're not alone. There's God. There's Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's here with us. God is here. The Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, were so alarmed with the thought that God could be with them that they literally covered their ears 
and started screaming because they could not hear those words. Why? Because the Jewish ruling council, like a lot of religious people in, in that day and in our day, we're quite comfortable with God, but we want a God we can control. We want a God that shows up in Scripture. You know, Moses tells us about God, and we'll tell you what that means, when we can visit God, what God wants to tell us. And a God that shows up in the temple, we'll tell you when you can come to know God. We'll, we'll, we'll be the ones that show you how you can know God. That the Sanhedrin had developed a system where they were the conduits of God. They were the ways that people could know God. We'll tell you what the scripture says. We'll tell you when you can come to the temple and visit God. And all of a sudden, God's just breaking through. And Stephen's like, this is what God's always been doing. From Abraham all the way through the prophets, God has been breaking through. And people like you, these religious leaders, are always trying to keep God in your box. You can't do it. And that's true for you and I today. God wants to break into our life, into our sin, into our brokenness, into our disappointment, into our hardship. He wants to break into our life and do something in us. That's, when we talk about identity, that's what we're talking about, is that Jesus wants to live in us. He wants to turn us into his temple. He wants us to live with this spiritual perspective, this eternal perspective. And so the doggy bag section asks a few questions. I just want you to think about these questions this week. Number one, when have you experienced God as a present reality in your life? Have you ever had that encounter that Stephen's having here, that Abraham had, that Joseph had, that Moses had, that David had? When have you ever had that experience where you've experienced God? Because when you have that experience, all of a sudden religion becomes, goes from something which is like God in the box to a relationship. Look at number three. What would change in your life if you lived with a spiritual, eternal, transcendent perspective? In other words, this, is, this week is All Saints Day. And I, the thing I like about All Saints Day is it reminds me it's not all about me. God was working through Stephen. God was working through Martin Luther. God was working through John Wesley. God was working through those people, my pastor when I was a kid, that invested in my life. God, God's been working through these individuals. By God's grace, hopefully God's working through me. And God will work through you. And just reminds us of this truth that we're not alone. We can get so overwhelmed. I can get so overwhelmed with the issues I'm dealing with here at church, with my kids, with my finances. We can get so overwhelmed with the issues our world is dealing with. The politics, we've got an election coming up, the issues in our world, the wars, the violence. It's all real. You know, I'm not minimizing it. It's all real. But God is breaking into this and doing something eternal. And when we have that eternal perspective, it gives our life purpose and meaning. That's my hope for you. As we think about this All Saints Day, as we think about Stephen and him giving his life for us, but more than that, him living God living through him for us, that we realize we can be those types of people. That God's going to visit you and call you to the plan he has for your life. That God's going to save you. And you might resist it, but God's bigger than, than your resistance. 
God, God's going to show up to you like David in, in your heart, not in, not in something you do for him. He's going to come to you just as you are. And he's going to offer us this new life. Let's pray that I might be so. Lord God, thank you for these moments that we share together. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you're still speaking, that you're still working in our lives, that you're still working in our world. Thank you, Lord, that you have a plan and a purpose. Thank you that even when we've turned against you, even when we've run away from you, even when we've said no to you, that, Lord, you're still working. Help us to be those people that believe in your promise. Help us to be those who, who say yes to this nation, this land, this covenant that you're creating. Help us to be those who allow you to work through even the disappointments of life, the, the times that we feel like our own brothers and sisters turn against us, the times that we feel like everything's uh, against us. May, may we know, Lord, that you're for us and that you're going to use our lives to continue to do your great work in redeeming your creation. We pray all this in Jesus' name.